As I said, we turn today to the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, a very famous passage and one that is certainly appropriate to our discussion today and the larger theme that we have been dealing with in the last few weeks, during the last few weeks, that of the Reformation. Paul writes, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Well, today we continue our series on the Reformation as we mark its 500th anniversary, and this is part four of our series. Uh, In our first message, we gave a very brief historical overview of the Reformation, at least the beginning years, the first few decades of the Reformation, and some of its key uh, figures in those early days. And we focused largely on the issues that were at play that led Martin Luther to post his 95 theses concerning the sale of indulgences. In our second message, we introduced the five solas of the Reformation. Um, You might remember that they are uh, sola scriptura, scripture alone, sola gratia, sola fide, solus Christus, and soli deo gloria, the five Uh, Themes that um, more than any other perhaps set apart Reformation theology from the theology and practice of the uh, medieval Roman Catholic Church. Um, These Latin phrases uh, have come to represent uh, the sum, or not the sum, but at least some of the most important distinctives between the two systems, that of Protestantism and Roman Catholicism. Last week in our third message, we dealt with the doctrine of solus Christus, the fact that our salvation is grounded in the work of Christ alone. Well, today we deal with a, a complex of themes that are so intricately related to each other that it's impossible to deal with one without at the same time dealing with all of them. We are talking about grace, faith, and justification. Faith, I'm sorry, grace, faith, and justification, and the relationship between them. Uh, The biblical and reformed view is that we are justified by the grace of God and that this grace of justification is received through faith. Uh, The biblical and reformed view, again, is that we are justified by the grace of God and this grace of justification comes to us or is received by us through faith. You might recall in our opening verse, uh, in our opening passage in verse 8, We read this, by grace you have been saved through faith. By grace you have been saved through faith. Uh, A a nice, succinct summary of the gospel, or at least the results of the gospel. By grace you have been saved through faith. Now, when we look at this passage, we might ask, well, what does Paul mean by being saved? This is one of the words that we throw around a lot as evangelical Christians. What does it mean, what does Paul mean when he speaks about being saved? What is salvation? Well, salvation, as it turns out, is actually a very large concept. It's, it's a very comprehensive thing. It includes everything that Jesus has done for us through the cross, every benefit that he died in order to secure for his people. Now, we generally think only in terms of the forgiveness of sins when we talk about being saved, but salvation includes more than this. It's true that it includes the forgiveness of sins, but also it includes deliverance from the power of sin. That is, uh, release from the enslaving power of sin so that we can live a truly holy and upright life. It includes also the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, sanctification, the grace of uh, perseverance, and resurrection on the last day. 
And it also uh, includes this thing that we call justification, which is related to the forgiveness of sins, but yet distinct from it, as we'll see in a few moments. Now, the important thing for us to note here at the very beginning is that uh, as an aspect of our salvation, justification, too, is given to us as a gift of God's grace received through faith. In fact, it would be altogether proper to say with regard to justification what we say with regard to salvation. That is, that we are saved and also we are justified by grace through faith. We are justified by grace through faith. Indeed, we find this very thing stated in the third chapter of Paul's letter to the Romans. And I'd like for you to see it in your own Bibles. So if you would, please turn there with me in Romans chapter 3. Um, one of the most highly theologically packed passages in all of Paul's writings um, in Romans chapter 3. Um, but he mentions these three elements that we're talking about, grace, faith, and justification. So in Romans chapter 3, beginning at verse 23, he says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace. They are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Now you see here that this passage has all three elements that we've been talking about. Grace, faith, and justification. And we find them standing in precisely the same order, or rather in the same relationship that we find in Ephesians chapter 2 when it talks about salvation. That we are saved by grace through faith. Here it's saying essentially the same thing, but it's talking about justification. We are justified by grace and it's received through faith. And this is uh, what we find here in Romans chapter 3, a fuller statement of that same truth. Ephesians is kind of a condensed version of it. Um, here in Romans, it's a, a fuller statement of these things, explained in a bit more detail. It's explained that the ground of or the basis for our justification is the redemption that Christ has accomplished, and that this redemption was secured for us by the offering of his own blood. It's a propitiatory sacrifice, which means that his sacrifice turns away the wrath of God that's due to human sin, and that this grace of justification, again, is received through faith. So we have all the same elements, but with a fuller explanation. Ephesians gives us the condensed version. Romans gives us a fuller version of it. Now we have a similar statement in Paul's letter to Titus in the third chapter, verses 4 through 7. If you wish to turn there, you're certainly welcome to, but I'll begin reading. Titus chapter 3, beginning at verse 4, he says, When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So here again, Paul mentions the fact that we are justified by grace. Now, in this particular passage, he doesn't mention faith, but faith is presupposed. So really, we have all of the elements that we've been talking about, grace, faith, and justification. And again, the connection between them, according to Scripture and according to the teaching of the Reformers, is that we are justified by grace. It's a gift from God. 
and we receive that gift, we receive the grace of justification by faith or through faith. <clears throat> we, I think, now need to take a closer look at what it means to be justified. All right, and we've thrown this term around and we use it on a fairly regular basis, but sometimes theological terms are not always really clear in our minds. What do we mean by justification? What is justification? Well, the Greek noun, which is translated as justification, appears only twice in the New Testament, both of them in Romans. But its verbal form, justify, or some tense of that verb, uh, appears 40 times. Uh, More than half of these are found in Romans and Galatians, where Paul deals rather extensively on the subject of justification. Uh, These words are very closely related to the underlying Greek words translated as righteous and righteousness. All right, now, if... In English, we look at these four words and we think, well, justification and justified don't look anything like righteous and righteousness. And so we might not, unless we already know the meaning of the terms and their connection to each other, might not realize that they're actually conceptually related to each other. But in Greek, this comes out very clearly. Um, On the right-hand side of that column, I've put the Greek words transliterated into English letters But notice the portions that are highlighted with each of the words. The Greek word for justification is dikaiosis. um, For justify, dikaio, then we have dikaios and dikaiosune. But you notice that the stem or the root of each of these words is the same. Justify, justification, righteous, righteousness. And my point in pointing all of this out is to make clear The justification has to do with righteousness. More specifically, the biblical doctrine of justification has to do with how it is that a sinful human being can be righteous in the sight of a holy God. And this is a very important question. It's a question that we read earlier from the book of Job, right? Job chapter 4, verse 17. Can a mortal man be in the right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? And then the question is asked again in slightly different words later in the book of Job. How then can a man be in the right before God? How can he who is born of a woman be pure? And Job, in asking these questions, is not finding fault with the fact that we're human beings. You know, it's not the fact that we're mortal. It's not the fact that we're born of women. That's not the issue. The issue is sin. And he understands that everyone who is born into this world, obviously is born from a woman, but also everyone is born sinful and commits sin. And the question is, how can such a man, how can a sinful human being be in the right before God? How can he be considered righteous before God? This is the question that plagued Martin Luther. How can I, a sinful man, be acceptable in the eyes of a holy God? He is righteous, I am unrighteous. How can he, in his righteousness, do anything other than condemn me? Have you ever thought about that question? How can a a righteous judge not visit iniquity with punishment, the punishment that it's due? If we had a judge in our state or in our community who refused to pass sentence and to Um, make sure that criminals receive the just deserts of their criminal behavior, then we would say that is not a righteous judge. 
How can God be righteous and at the same time not punish those who are wicked, who are unrighteous? It was a question that plagued Luther. Now, for some people, this doesn't even seem like a very important question. And it doesn't seem very important to them because they don't think rightly either about the holiness of God or about the terrible guilt of human sin. They don't understand just how unworthy and vile a thing sin really is. They don't understand just how worthy of condemnation it is. And as a consequence, just how worthy of condemnation they they are as a result of having sinned. I believe it's a, a good thing for us to recognize and to feel within our soul that we deserve hell. It's not a pleasant thing to think about, but we deserve condemnation from God because he is righteous and we are not. Now, we know and we've been trained to think and trained to take assurance from the fact that we believe in Christ. And so that sense of despair at ever being made right in the eyes of God doesn't, you know, doesn't loom large in our thinking. But it did loom large in Luther's thinking. He understood, God is righteous, I am unrighteous, and as a righteous judge, how can he do anything other than condemn me? But some people are not troubled by this at all because they don't think very much of God's holiness or very much of their own sin. They seem to think that sin is just not that big of a deal to God. I mean, God forgives sins because that's what God does. You know, it's in his job description. You know, he's a forgiver of sins. And they don't understand just the problems that are inherent um, in the forgiveness of sins. But think about this. God would not, and indeed God could not, forgive our sin apart from sacrifice without compromising his own righteousness. He would cease to be righteous if he didn't visit iniquity with the punishment it deserves. He couldn't simply overlook sin and do nothing about it. It has to be punished. So the question is, how can God be both just by punishing sin and also merciful to the sinner and forgive him. Well, he could punish sin, not in the person of the sinner himself, but in a worthy substitute. The writer of Hebrews makes the point very clearly when he says that there is no forgiveness without the shedding of blood, without sacrifice. But of course, not any sacrifice will do, not the sacrifice of bulls and goats or of any other animal. The sacrifice must be of the same nature as the offender, The sacrifice must be a man, must be a human being. But not just any man will do. It has to be a sinless man. And a sinless man of incomparable worth in order to invest his death with sufficient value to take away the sins of the world. Remember, that's what John the Baptist, when he saw saw Jesus um, off in the distance, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. How can a single man have such worth or have such power to take away the sins of the world? Well, it's because that he is such a man as Jesus. He is God manifest in human flesh. And it's his divinity that invests his humanity with such worth that his sacrifice is capable of being sufficient to atone for the sins of the world. This is Jesus, the perfect sinless man, God of God, light of light, true God of true God, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and suffered and bled and died for our redemption. He was altogether pure and holy. He was utterly spotless and very dear to God the Father. And God would not forgive human sin without the sacrifice of his Son. That tells us just how 
serious a thing sin is in the eyes of God. Don't ever be mistaken about this. Don't ever trifle with sin. Don't ever think that sin in general or your sin specifically is no big deal to God. It is a big deal to God. He would not forgive sin apart from the death of his son. That which was most precious to him, he parted with and sacrificed so that we might be forgiven. The great hymn writer Thomas Kelly in his hymn, Stricken, Smitten, and Afflicted, says, Ye who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great, here may view its nature rightly, here its guilt may estimate. Mark the sacrifice appointed, see who bears the awful load, tis the word, the Lord's anointed, son of man and son of God. All right? It's the nature of the sacrifice that was necessary to atone for sin that tells us just how serious a thing sin really is in God's eyes. So the question is, how can a man be in the right before God? Or how can a man be just or justified in the eyes of God? This is the question of justification. The answer to this question was in the 16th century and is still today a major point of difference between the Roman Catholic Church and Protestants. The chairman of the Council of Trent, and you might remember from last week's message, the Council of Trent was a council that was called by the Roman Catholic Church to answer some of the things that the Reformers were saying and to set forth uh, Rome's official view on the matters that were in dispute. The chairman of the Council of Trent wrote to the Pope and he said, the significance of this council in the theological sphere lies chiefly in the article on justification In fact, this is the most important item the council has to deal with. And in fact, Luther agreed with this assessment. He was writing earlier, and he said that the doctrine of justification by faith is the article upon which the church stands or falls. So you have both sides agreeing this is of major significance. How is a man to be considered right in the eyes of God? And so what are the main differences between Rome and the Reformers? Differences that I remind you still exist today. Well, the differences are indicated or highlighted by the use of the modifier alone with reference to grace and faith. We talked about the five solas of the Reformation. And the two specifically that relate to justification are grace alone, sola gratia, and faith alone, sola fide. Rome would agree that, yes, we are justified as an act of God's grace, And of course, faith plays a very important role. The reformer said, not only does it play a role, and not only is grace necessary, but necessary and sufficient. It's enough. These things alone uh, grant us salvation, grant us justification in the eyes of God. So it's that modifier attached to grace alone, grace alone, that modifier attached to faith, faith alone, that sets the difference apart, or makes the difference between Rome and the Reformers. Now, when we talk about uh, these two things, grace and faith, we have to understand what they they stand in antithesis to, or opposite to. Grace stands, or grace alone, rather, stands opposed to merit. All right? If... um, you do some work for me, we make a contract. I recently had contracted with somebody to do some work around the house, to do some repair work. And um, when that work was done, he handed me a bill, 
and I paid him. He earned it, right? He merited that pay. Now, if I just were out of the generosity of my own heart just to walk up to him on the street someday and just hand him a bundle of money, you know, without having done any work for me, then that is a gift of grace. That's a gracious gift, right? It's a, it's a free gift. And so when the reformers are talking about grace alone, they're talking about something that is the opposite of merit, opposite of something that is earned. And when they speak of faith alone, uh, they're speaking about something that stands opposed to human works. Uh, work, merit derives from human works, whereas faith and grace uh, go together. And the same issue was at play even in the days of the New Testament, not just in the 16th century and not just today, but even in the days of the New Testament. Um, in the first century, uh, many Jews looked upon the performance of the ordinances of the law as means by which they could achieve merit with God. Circumcision, keeping kosher, properly keeping the Sabbath day, the feast days, and so on. These were things that one could do, one could observe to earn merit with God, to earn a greater standing with God. It's like a ladder of merit. In fact, uh, the Jews have a prayer. I'm not sure when it originated. It's quite old, and it's still frequently prayed by Orthodox Jews today, in which they will pray, God, I thank you that you made me a Jew and not a Gentile. I thank you that you made me a man and not a woman. I thank you that you made me free and not a slave. Now, the reason behind this was not because they necessarily looked down upon Gentiles, although oftentimes they did, or women or slaves, but because there was greater opportunity to earn merit if you were a free Jewish male. There are more commandments in the law that apply to Jews than apply to Gentiles more commandments in the law that apply to males than to females, and more commandments that can be observed if you're free than if you're a slave. And the more commandments there are for me to obey, the more merit I earn with God. When Paul tells his readers that you are not justified by works, but by grace, this is what he's referring to, this idea that observance of the rituals of the law or acts of charity and almsgiving, these somehow earn us a standing with God, that they, they, we accrue merit with God, Paul is saying, no, no, you don't understand this at all. It is by grace that we are saved, through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. So the merit, merit human merit doesn't enter into the equation at all. So this is often, this was what was commonly believed in the first century among the Jews, and this was Something very similar. The details were changed a bit, but the substance was very similar in the 16th century. And it wasn't circumcision and keeping kosher and the feast days and proper observance of the Sabbath, but it's making pilgrimages, doing penance, almsgiving, and various other things. And these things were viewed as earning uh, a person merit with God. These things contributed to one's justification. According to Rome, justification is a process. It's a process rather than in the Reformed and biblical understanding of it being an event. It's a process. Um, Now, this is not a word that I've chosen to characterize their position from my vantage point as a Protestant, but this is a word that they themselves frequently use to describe it. It's a process of inner transformation that begins with baptism, and it continues with the reception of the other sacraments, including confirmation and the Eucharist, but especially the sacrament of penance, you know what penance is? That's, that's when you go to a priest and you confess your sins 
And then the priest prescribes some acts uh, to do in order to make satisfaction for the sins that you have confessed. So when I was growing up, and Kyle and Warren and maybe some others of you grew up in Roman Catholic Church, you would go into the confessional and you would kneel before the priest and you would say, Father, bless me for I have sinned or Father, forgive me for I have sinned. It's been so long since my last confession. And then you would begin to tell the priest your sins. Um, and then when the priest is, or when you're done, then the priest will say, uh, Te absolvo, I absolve you of these sins. And for your penance, do these things. And oftentimes for me, I mean, my, my sins were childlike, ch- childhood sins. I wasn't guilty of murder and rape and pillage and that sort of thing. You know, but for me, it was, you know, say so many Our Fathers and so many Hail Marys um, and, and try to do better, be more, be more obedient to your mother. You know, if I, if I confess that I had disobeyed my mother or something. You know, but these are acts of penance, saying pr- repetitious prayers, um, made satisfaction for the sins that I had committed. Uh, I suppose if it were more serious sins, the penance would involve more. It may involve, uh, you know, charitable work or something like this. But you see, this enters into one's justification. These are ways in which the individual helps to make satisfaction for the sins that he has committed. Um, So these acts of penance and other good works a person might do on his own, just motivated not by the priest tells me I need to do this, I just wish to do these things. And it might be a completely sincere a selfless thing. I just want to give alms to the poor. However it comes about, there is an element of merit that is accrued as a result of this. These are meritorious works that contribute to one's justification. The Council of Trent, the council, as I said, to answer the challenge of the Reformed teaching, declared, if anyone says that the good works of the one that is justified are in such a manner the gifts of God that they are not also the good merits of him that is justified. Or if anyone says that the said justified person by the good works which he performs through the grace of God and the merit of Jesus Christ, whose living member he is, does not truly merit increase of grace, eternal life, and, and, and I'm sorry, eternal life and the attainment of that eternal life, and also an increase in glory, let him be anathema. In other words, let him come under God's wrath and curse. If you deny that our works are meritorious and enter into our justification and the achieving of eternal life. Okay, it's a very strong statement. Let him come under God's wrath and curse if this is denied. You say, well, that was the 16th century. This is the 21st century, and Rome has changed. There have been several councils since then, including Vatican Council Two in the 1960s, in which so many changes took place. And there were a number of changes that took place. There was somewhat of a softening of their stance towards Protestants. As I mentioned before, they were now referred to as separated brethren. But the Catholic Catechism of 1995 states on this matter, no one can merit initial grace, which is at the origin of conversion. At the moment of conversion, there is a grace that is given that you do not merit Moved by the Holy Spirit, we can merit for ourselves and for others all the graces needed to attain eternal life as well as necessary temporal goods. 
In other words, at the beginning, grace has to be there and there's no human merit at all. But subsequently to receiving that initial grace, there is other grace that can be received or can be obtained for oneself by the meritorious works that you perform. And not only for yourself, it even says for others. (laughs) Remember we talked before about the treasury of merit that goes into the indulgence system. So Rome's view is essentially this, that at baptism, the recipient receives a measure of grace by which the work of justification is begun, but it must be completed by the works of the individual believer. It's taught that these works are inspired and empowered by grace, and that without grace, the works could not be done. They're very clear about the necessity of grace, but the works have real merit by which the one who does them contributes to his justification. Now, this stands in stark contrast to the teaching of Scripture as proclaimed by the Reformers, and as we believe as well. A person is justified by grace alone. That's why they attach that sola uh, to the gratia. It is by grace alone. No human merit enters into the equation at all. It's not like Christ has done um, 99% of the work necessary, and we have to contribute 1%. No, it's by grace alone, through Christ's work alone, and it's received by faith alone. So a person is justified by grace alone, excluding human merit, and this grace is justified, or this grace of justification is received by faith alone, apart from sacraments, apart from works, apart from anything done by the sinner or anything done to him by someone else. So in the Roman Catholic view, justification is a process in which a transformation takes place in the interior life of a person so that he is made righteous over time. Now, we believe that this is true, but we call it sanctification. But it's very different from justification, and confusing the two has a lot of bad consequences. All right, But they believe that justification is, results as an inner transformation that a person accrues merit over time, increases the status or sense of his justification over time. Another word that is sometimes used to describe this is imparted or infused righteousness. But in the biblical and reformed view, justification is not a process, but it is a singular event. Nor is it transformative by itself, but it is declarative. In other words, in justification, God does not make a pers- an unrighteous person righteous, but declares an unrighteous person to be righteous. It's not like God says, okay, well, here's some grace. I give to you in your baptism. Do what you can with it. And if you do well, I'll add some more to it to help you even more. And after a long life of faithfulness and accru- accruing merit, then at the end of this time, I will declare you to be righteous after you spend so many years in purgatory, of course, to take care of things you didn't make proper penance for. No, it's at the beginning when a person believes in the Lord Jesus Christ, he is accounted at that moment righteous. It's it's an act of declaration by God. We don't hear it, but it's, it's, you know, in the court of heaven, as it were, God the judge declares us to be righteous, even though, in fact, at that point, we are not righteous. We are still sinful. And we will continue to be sinful, hopefully less and less so. And where there is true faith, this is the case, that be less and less sinful as we grow and mature. 
Otherwise, it's not true faith. That's another discussion to be had at some point. This, this whole concept, um, you ready for another Latin phrase? Uh, Martin Luther, um, th- this phrase maybe sums up the idea of justification as clearly um, as, as anything else we could say about it. He said that for the person who has believed in Jesus Christ, he is simul justus et peccator. Simul justus et peccator, which means simultaneously, at the same time, just or justified and a sinner. At the same time. Meaning because God has declared him to be righteous. He is righteous. Not in fact, but in God's estimation because of what Christ has done. Even though he still is sinful. We still have to contend with the sinful nature. We still sometimes commit actual sins, much to our regret. But at the same time, we are both just or righteous and a sinner. Now, this refers to two different viewpoints or two different vantage points. Um, And then over time, of course, God's grace working in us, his Holy Spirit working in us, uh, conforms us to the image of Christ. But in justification, it's a gracious declaration by God that he he, uh, declares you to be righteous. Remember, Paul mentioned several times in his writings, his favorite figure to illustrate this is Abraham. In the 15th chapter of Genesis, God initiates a covenant with Abraham, and he gives him promises. And it says that Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Paul refers to this three times in his writings. This is the divine exemplar of what it means to be justified by faith. Was Abraham a perfect man? Was he a sinless man? Was he altogether righteous? No, he was a sinner like anybody else. But yet, because he trusted in God's word, believed God's word, God counted him graciously, graciously accounted him to be righteous. And of course, we believe that he grew in his understanding of the will of God and became more and more actually righteous over time. But justification deals with that initial Um, declaration that God gives of a believer who has come to believe in him. And of course, in the New Testament, the object of our faith is Jesus Christ. Abraham didn't yet have the revelation of a coming Messiah. He simply took God at his word. God spoke. Abraham believed it. God says, I will graciously reckon you to be righteous because you have believed in me. All right. Now the message of the gospel goes out. We preach about Jesus and what he has done, the cross, and that he has paid for our sins. He has atoned for our sins. And remember who Jesus is as the Son of God. And he comes, as Paul tells us in Galatians, he was born of a woman, born under the law, and he fulfills all righteousness. He is obedient in every point to the law, never has transgressed. He has a perfect righteousness as a man living under the law, when every other man who has ever attempted to do so has sinned and fallen grievously. And so he has this perfect righteousness. And what we find in the New Testament is that there is um, what is, the language here is not in the New Testament, but the, the ideas are there. A double imputation. When Jesus goes to the cross, he goes um, with our sin imputed to him. 
meaning our sin has been charged to his account. That's why he suffers. He doesn't suffer for his own sins. He suffers for our sins. Our sins are imputed to him. And then when we believe his righteousness, fully obedient to every point of the law, his righteousness is then imputed to us or reckoned to our account so that we are considered to be righteous before God with the very righteousness of Christ himself. Right? Not our own righteousness, because we would never stand approved in God's sight if we were to offer up to him our own righteousness. Even our holiest acts, even our most righteous acts are still tainted somewhat with sin. But Jesus Christ offers us his righteousness. He was made to be sin who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. So when we go to the Father, when we go in prayer in Jesus' name, that's why we pray in Jesus' name, because we're appealing to his merits, not our own. As much as I highly regard Monty, I don't say, Father, I come to you in Monty's name. (laughs) And and this is no uh, aspersion to be cast on Monty, but I think God would say, I'm not going to listen to you if you come in Monty's name. And I will listen to Monty if he comes in yours. But if you come to me in the name of my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased, I will listen to you. Right? So we come clothed with his righteousness when we come in Jesus' name. And God is gracious to us in answering prayers, not, again, not because of righteousness that we have earned for ourselves, but because of what Christ has earned for us and is credited to our account. The Westminster Shorter Catechism <clears throat> a great catechism that came out of the Reformation towards the end of that Reformation period. And the Westminster Standards, uh, the Confession of Faith and the Catechism, the shorter and larger catechisms, are just, I think, the the best distillation of of a Reformed understanding of of the Gospel. But in its uh, shorter catechism on justification, the question on uh, on justification is perhaps the most concise way in which the matter could be put. The question is, what is justification? The answer is, justification is an act of God's free grace, wherein he pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. Um, That's It's comprehensive in its explanation, but it's a very concise way to express it. It has all of the elements. The definition of justification, the fact that it comes by grace, and it's received through faith. Again, it says, justification is an act of God's free grace, wherein he pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight, only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith. Alone. I tell you, if we understand this, we will understand our standing with God and the fact that it's all of grace for which we give him abundant thanks and praise because it humbles us to realize that we stand before God not based on anything that we have done. It's not based on works lest any man should boast, but it is given to us as an act of God's grace and to be able to stand confidently before God knowing that we have actually been made righteous in his sight through the gracious work of Christ. This is something to be 
cherished, something to be loved. This is, this is, in essence, the core message of the gospel. And I pray that we can understand it more fully than we have. Let's pray together.